Hello, it's December 29th, 2021. My name is Simone, and this is a special edition of 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. Like always, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend and holiday and are having a great start to your week and maybe preparing for the New Year's holiday. And speaking of New Year's, uh, today's episode has to do with the New Year, but of course it takes place in the 90s. But I also want to go ahead and warn you, that today's case talks about sexual assault and a hate crime. Listener's discretion is advised. The year was 1993, and in the small town of Humboldt, Nebraska, 80 miles away of the bigger city of Lincoln, This city is a part of America's quote-unquote heartland. Humboldt, back in the 90s, had a population so small that the residents only numbered to around 1,000. But many people liked it that way. Just in case people from Humboldt wanted to get out of town, however, for maybe a little more excitement, according to an article, Humboldt residents could easily travel to other states because the town borders a short distance from Kansas, Iowa, and Missouri. And if Humboldt residents really wanted to live it up, they could go 140 miles northwest to Kansas City. Either way, the people of the small town of Humboldt are reported to be close-knit, everyone knows everybody, and generally, the people are friendly. However, on New Year's Eve 1993, the people in Humboldt, Nebraska as a whole, and eventually the whole country, would realize that not everyone here was as friendly as people thought. When such a horrific event occurred here, that would make the people of Humboldt question their surroundings. In the following case, you'll find out what happened on New Year's Eve 1993 in Humboldt, the investigation, and the aftermath in a case I title, Horror in the Heartland. The crime of this story primarily takes place in Humboldt, but let's go back a few decades to Lincoln, Nebraska. Back in the late 1960s, a teenage girl named Joanne Brandon was preparing to give birth to her first child at just the age of 14. 
And according to reports, Joanne gave birth to a girl she named Tammy around 1969. Joanne lived with her husband, Pat Brandon, and by 1972, the young couple were preparing for baby number two. However, shortly after Joanne became one month pregnant, Pat, now age 19, was killed in a car accident, leaving Joanne a very young single mother. So to make ends meet, before her second baby was born, Joanne moved back in with her parents to help raise her children. And on December 12, 1972, the now 16-year-old Joanne gave birth to a daughter she named Tina. Times were very rough for Joanne, but she got a job working retail and she depended on her now deceased husband, Pat's social security check, to get by. And as luck would have it for Joanne, by the time she turned 19, she got married again. But her marriage would only last five years. But she continued focusing on her daughters. As Tammy and Tina got older, Joanne sent her girls to parochial schools as she was an observant Catholic. But what she wasn't expecting was for her daughters to change drastically. According to reports, once Tammy and Tina reached high school, they barely went home. Tammy eventually moved out of Joanne's home as a teen, and Tina soon followed and moved in with a friend. Both girls started to crash at their friends' homes until Tammy got a place of her own and then Tina moved in with her. But living with Tammy wasn't very pleasant for Tina because apparently, according to reports, Tammy was involved with a man who physically abused her. And shortly after Tina moved in, Tammy accused Tina of stealing from her. And they argued frequently about the subject until Tina had enough and moved back in with Joanne. Tina still wasn't happy, but it was a break from Tammy. It's unclear about the relationship between the sisters after Tina moved out. But what is known is that Tammy got pregnant and Tina was very excited to become an aunt. Until Tammy gave birth and decided to give her baby girl up for adoption. Tina was very upset because she thought she would become an aunt but it was not to be at that time. Also, since Tina had began high school, she began to feel differently about herself, confused about her self-identity. According to reports, Tina had always been a tomboy, but once she hit high school, her tomboy phase went a little further. She began to question whether or not she felt like a girl and began to lean towards the idea to identify as a boy. And further into high school, she accepted her image and began to slowly dress more masculine. And then Tina decided to go by the name Billy. Joanne rejected this notion, however, and continued to call Billy Tina. Billy was socially awkward in high school, but as he began to accept his identity, his confidence grew. 
Billy's confidence grew so much that as he was attending Catholic school, he began to protest the school's stance on abstinence and homosexuality. He protested the school's dress code and began to dress even more masculine. And he secretly began to date girls. And although he was having a sort of tough time in school with no real aspirations for his future, that all changed when a U.S. Army recruiter visited his high school and talked to Billy about enlisting. Billy thought this was a great idea, and a great idea to get out of Lincoln. And just after he turned 18, Billy enlisted. However, before his potential military career started, it ended after Billy failed the written exam, after he put down he was male, when in fact he was biologically female. The rejection from the army put a damper on Billy and he went back to having no real dreams for his future. But in December 1990, someone oddly brightened his spirits. That month, according to reports, a 13-year-old girl named Liz dialed the wrong number and ended up calling Joanne's home. The person who answered the phone said his name was Billy Brinson and young Liz and Billy struck up a conversation hit it off, and decided they'd like to meet up. On December 31st, 1990, Billy and Liz followed through on their plan and went on a roller skating date. Billy soon met Liz's friend Heather, who was 14, and he began to show interest in her too. To Billy, he liked to be around the young girls because he felt he could mentor them about dating and love. And soon, he began to get closer to Heather. To her, he was a great kisser and cuddler, and she became so enthralled with Billy that she talked her mother into letting him move in with them. Her mother agreed, and Billy moved in. But at the same time, he was still a senior in high school. But by this time, he decided to take a different path in life and started skipping school and eventually flunked out. After his high school days, and after he moved in with Heather, Billy started to feel like he couldn't keep up with the charade of being born biologically a female for much longer. So guessing it was before she could find out the truth, Billy told Heather he was born a hermaphrodite. Then he claimed he was a man trapped inside a woman's body and over the course of the next several months, he kept explaining to her that he was in the process of a sex change. And then, when he couldn't keep up with this story, Billy told Heather that there was something down there. It was small, but it would get bigger by the time all the operations were completed. To avoid Heather from really seeing what was down there, Billy would always resort to touching Heather if they wanted to be intimate. He rarely let her go too far. But that was okay to Heather. She was so in love with Billy, who again changed his name to Billy Brandon. And sometime during their relationship, Billy requested Heather's hand in marriage, and she gladly accepted. 
But while Billy and Heather were in bliss, Joanne was not. She was so bothered by Billy changing his identity to male and the fact that he was dating a girl, an underage girl at that, it sent her into a rage. So she called up Heather's mother and left her messages on her answering machine, telling her Tina, AKA Billy, was in fact not a male and that she was participating in lesbian activities with Heather. But Heather's mother thought she was crazy and her messages got so bad that she called police on Joanne and they cited her for disturbing the peace. Billy called her mom and told her that she was not a lesbian, but Joanne didn't want to hear it. And she continued to dismiss the notion that Tina was Billy. Over time, Billy was calling himself Brandon and decided to use Tina as his last name. And outside of Heather, Brandon had many girls and never had a problem getting a date, even though Heather was his main girlfriend. But during this time, as Brandon tried to make more friends, many would find out his true identity and shun him. Or girls he dated would freak out when they found out that Brandon was born a girl. And during this time, he leaned on one of his friends he could trust and told her that she was very confused about who she was. He wasn't sure if he was actually a lesbian or trans or what he was. He was very confused. And also around this time, to impress the girls that would accept him, Brandon decided he needed to get a job. But since he didn't have an ID that had Brandon Tina on it, he decided to steal a man's ID to try and get a job at a temp agency. But that fell through. So this time, Brandon turned to crime. According to reports, just so he could shower his girlfriends with gifts, Brandon began to steal ATM cards and forge checks. And most of his victims were his friends and even parents of his friends. But surprisingly, many of them defended him and forgave Brandon because they felt he needed to survive and he actually bought them nice gifts with their money. One person who was really impressed with his gifts was another love interest named Gina. And on one occasion, Brandon really impressed her when he bought a hotel room and decorated the room with flowers, dressed in a tux, and proposed marriage to her. And of course, she said yes. And now Brandon was engaged to two women. But according to other reports, some people weren't so forgiving when Brandon stole from them. And in March 1991, Brandon was arrested for possession of stolen property and he was fined $500 and served three days in jail. Brandon kept getting arrested throughout 1991 for his money crimes, but usually his charges were dropped or the county attorney declined to prosecute. But in October 1991, Brandon couldn't escape a forgery charge and was arrested. And things got even worse when Heather confronted Brandon about his real identity, man or woman. 
Brandon couldn't handle the pressure Heather was giving him, so to escape, he swallowed a bottle of antibiotics and was rushed to the hospital, and he ultimately survived. However, a week after he recovered, Brandon was sent to the Lancaster County Crisis Center in Lincoln, where he was placed under suicide alert. But after a week, Brandon was discharged, but not before therapists diagnosed him as a transsexual with a personality disorder. Fast forwarding to March 1992, Brandon, who was officially named Tina Brandon by the court system, was convicted of second-degree forgery and was sentenced to 18 months probation under the terms of which he would agree to undergo psychological counseling, not consume alcoholic beverages, get a high school equivalency diploma or GED, and make restitution in the amount of $186.49 to a grocery store where he had stolen from. But even after he was found guilty, stealing didn't seem to faze Brandon, and he continued to forge more checks and steal more ATM cards so he could impress women with gifts. And because he continued to violate his probation, a Lancaster County judge issued a statewide warrant for his arrest. And even worse, Brandon was arrested for forging a bank withdrawal slip for $135 a second felony when he was still on probation for the first. His world was crashing down. He only stole the money to impress girls and he thought he'd get away with it. But he wasn't and had to face consequences. So Brandon decided that he needed to get away from Lincoln and go somewhere where no one knew him. And as luck would have it for Brandon, in November, 1993, his friend Daphne told him that her friend Carrie was staying at a rental property with her boyfriend and their friend, the actual renter, Lisa Lambert, who was a single mom, worked as a nurse's aide and bartender, and she lived in Humboldt, Nebraska. Brandon took this opportunity without thinking twice, and he left Lincoln for Humboldt fast leaving Gina and Heather behind. When he arrived in Humboldt, he quickly turned on his charm and it worked like magic. According to reports, Brandon became a regular at local hangouts and just like in Lincoln, many girls were attracted to him, including Lisa, who told people that she had drunk sex with Brandon, possibly to get the girls off of him and all to herself. But still, no one knew Brandon's true identity, but Brandon's roommates became curious when tampon wrappers were found in heating vents at the home, but they didn't match Lisa's brand she used, and Carrie was pregnant. But no one decided to address the issue. Lisa, however, continued to crush hard on Brandon, but Brandon had his eyes on someone else he met in the county in December 1993, named Lana Tisdell, leaving Lisa heartbroken. Lana was also a fixture around the popular hangouts in town, and Brandon had never felt this way about a girl before. And he was so into her 
that just the day after meeting Lana, Brandon wanted to know if he could take her out on a date, and she accepted. Brandon took Lana to lunch and then to see a movie, and from then on, the two got closer, and eventually, Brandon moved out of Lisa's place and in with Lana at her mother's home, just in time for the holidays. And shortly after Brandon moved in with Lana, Lana's sister Leslie invited a guest to their home as well. And his name was Philip Devine, who she met in Job Corps. Leslie had taken an interest in him, and Philip even offered to take care of her child if they became a couple. And they did off and on, and the house became one big party between Brandon, Lana, Leslie, and Philip. And Lana and Lisa's friends, John Lauder and Thomas Neeson. According to reports, John and Thomas ventured closer to Brandon as one of their bros, along with Philip, and they frequently hung around together. The men would talk about ways to get laid, they'd play cards, and they'd venture around in their car to scope out women and bring them back to the house to hook up with them. But it's unclear if Brandon ever cheated on Lana. By now, Brandon was stable, had a lovely girlfriend, had friends, and he was popular and free to be himself. But that changed on December 15, 1993. That day, Brandon was arrested again for forging checks from his friend Carrie's bank account, and he was identified in the Richardson County Jail as Tina Brandon. And finally, after a week, Lana visited Brandon, who was unable to make bail, and she noticed that Brandon had on a V-neck sweater that was usually given to female prisoners. And as she looked closer at Brandon, Lana noticed breast on Brandon when she leaned over. And once word got out to Lana's mother that Brandon was born a woman, she became furious and banned him from her home. Brandon then tried to call Lisa to crash at her home, but she refused after she found out Brandon stole from her friend, Carrie. So now, Brandon, who was still in jail, had to figure out where to go. And as luck would have it, on December 22nd, Thomas was able to bail him out and Brandon stayed with him. But why he bailed Brandon out may have been for a different motive, not for helping out a friend. You see, two days later, on Christmas Eve, December 24th, Thomas held a small party that he, John Lauder, Philip Devine, Lana and Leslie, and Brandon all attended. But as the night went on and they got drunk, Thomas and John, after hearing the rumors about Brandon's true identity, began to make disparaging comments about him and wanted to know if he was actually a she. But Tina was not to be deterred and continued to have fun with Lana. 
but Thomas and John were not letting up. So sometime that night, Thomas and John forced Brandon into the bathroom. They held him down and took his pants and underwear off. They then grabbed Lana and forced her to look at what they saw on Brandon, a vagina. But Lana didn't say a word. And then John forced Lana to come home with him to his place. Brandon begged Lana not to leave him alone with Thomas because he was afraid of him. But Lana was being pulled away by John and she promised she'd come back for him. As the night went on after the assault, the partygoers all fell asleep except for Thomas. And when John made his way back without Lana, the two devised a plan. As the others were asleep, Thomas and John forced Brandon into a car and drove to the Hormel plant at the edge of town, where in the back seat of the car, according to reports, they proceeded to penetrate him vaginally and anally. They then beat him, and when they were done, they drove back to Thomas's home and told him to take a shower and warned him not to tell anyone. Brandon went into the bathroom as he was told, but when he entered the bathroom, Brandon turned on the shower and quickly fled out of the bathroom window. He made his way back to Lana's mom's home, and after seeing Brandon bloody and beaten with no shoes or coat, she let him in. Lana's sister Leslie called police, and eventually Brandon made his way to the local hospital. At the hospital, a rape kit examination indicated vaginal bleeding and trauma, and there were semen specimens in both his anus and his vagina. The next day, even though he was warned not to, Brandon filed a report against John and Thomas. After he filed the report, Brandon was then questioned by Sheriff Charles Lowe. According to reports, after Sheriff Lowe brought in Brandon and read about his long rap sheet and how he posed as a man, he began to get testy with him. For example, he questioned Brandon as to why he was hanging around boys instead of girls, like he quote-unquote was. And he questioned Brandon about Thomas and John pulling his pants down. And when Brandon said that they didn't touch him sexually at that point, Sheriff Lowe responded, quote, You were all half-ass drunk. I can't believe that he pulled your pants down and you are a female that he didn't stick his hand in you or his finger in you, end quote. Brandon said again they didn't touch him sexually by that point. Then Sheriff Lowe questioned Brandon again and said, quote, Did, when he got in the back seat, you were already spread out back there, ready for him, waiting on him, end quote. Brandon then again said, no. Sheriff Lowe then questioned about her virginity status and wanted to know if either Thomas or John had trouble getting their penises into Brandon's vagina but it's unclear what he said, if anything. Lastly, Brandon told Sheriff Lowe that he had a sexual identity crisis 
and when he wanted to know more details, Brandon declined and left the station. And three days after Brandon filed the rape report, deputies questioned Thomas and John, and even though they denied any wrongdoing, police had enough evidence against them and thought they should be arrested. But Sheriff Lowe refused to do so. That decision outraged Brandon's sister Tammy and she called and questioned Sheriff Lowe about his decision. But in return, he told her she was interfering. Eventually, Lana's mother told John and Thomas that Brandon told on them. And after Brandon found out they knew, he panicked because he had nowhere to go. If he went back to Lincoln, he'd be arrested for violating the terms of his 1992 probation. If he went back to Falls City, a town where he lived for a short time, he was looking at a felony conviction for forgery. Now what? But in good news for Brandon, Lisa told him he could come back to Humboldt to stay with her. When he returned to live with her, he was joined by Philip after he left Lana's mother's home, after he and Lana's sister Leslie had an argument. And he waited to go back home to Iowa as soon as his mother was able to afford a bus ticket for him. By now, Brandon was sort of stable again, but he was worried because after he ratted out John and Thomas, they threatened to kill him. He told his mother about the threats, but he didn't take them as seriously as he should have. Meanwhile, Thomas and John were on the hunt. They wanted to find Brandon to shut him up so they figured he was back home in Lincoln and staked out three residences they had found in the address book Brandon had left behind after the rape on Christmas Eve. But they didn't find him in Lincoln. So for the next few days, they festered with anger until they had another plan. On December 30th, according to reports, Brandon was supposed to return to the police station for a follow-up interview. But when he got there, he saw that Thomas was there, so he didn't go in. He then called Joanne, who begged him to come home. But he told her, quote, I'll be there on the 3rd, and everything will be all right, end quote. Later that day, Thomas and John drove to Rulo, Nebraska to see Thomas's mother, and Thomas told her he wanted to give power of attorney for his youngest child to her, but didn't explain why. They then went to a local bar and drank all day. On December 31st, New Year's Eve, John and Thomas went to a friend's home and stole a 380 caliber semi-automatic handgun. They then went to Lana's mother's home to try and find Brandon, but she told them 
that Brandon was staying with Lisa and Humboldt. Thomas and John then left Lana's mother's home and made their way to Humboldt. Later that morning, at around 10 a.m., Lisa's mother, Anna May, came to Lisa's home to drop off some things she had agreed to drop off that morning. However, when she got there, she noticed the storm door was ajar and the front door was open, unusual for the cold Nebraska winter. She knocked on the door but got no answer, but then she heard Lisa's son crying and she opened the door. She then saw the body of a young black male leaning on the living room couch, but she didn't stop until she found her grandson. She then found him still in his crib, but then she turned around and found Lisa on her waterbed, not moving with blood covering her face. The waterbed had been punctured and the floor was soaked. Anna May then saw another person lying across the foot of the bed, but she just saw legs, not the face. She then took her grandson and went out to the dining room where she placed a call to police and then prepared a bottle for Lisa's son. As she was an EMT, Anna May avoided touching much in Lisa's home, just only the things she needed to take care of her grandson. And she sat in the chair feeding her grandson near the young black male's body, but she avoided looking at him. When police arrived, Anna May exited the home with her grandson and police went in. First, they came across the body of the young black male in the living room. He had been shot twice in the head and he was identified as Philip Devine. Next, they came across the body of Lisa and she had been shot once in her side and twice in her head with one bullet entering through her right eye and exiting below her right ear. And at the foot of Lisa's bed, police came across the body of who they thought was a young man who had been shot in the chin and head, and they were stabbed. And he was identified first as Brandon Tina, and then officially as Tina Brandon. As the investigation carried on, police locked up when they received a tip to look at John Lauder and Thomas Neeson. Later that day, police found them both and arrested them for the murders, and at the station, Thomas immediately blamed John for the whole thing. But just to make sure they had the right people in custody, police had an inkling that they'd find something that would give them clues. And in the nearby Nimaha River, they saw golden gloves lying on top of the ice on the frozen river and found a gun and a knife inside a leather sheath in which the name Lauder, John's last name, was printed. Police had the right ones in custody and they charged both John and Thomas with first-degree murder. For a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, Thomas agreed to testify against John, and soon the people of Humboldt and beyond were able to learn what exactly happened that night. According to reports, Thomas and John drove up to Lisa's home. 
and when they got out, it looked as if no one was home. But John figured that Brandon was here, so he decided to kick open the door. The two then came across Lisa in her bed, and near her was her eight-month-old son in his crib. John demanded Lisa to tell him where Brandon was, but she refused to tell him. Then he and Thomas started looking through Lisa's home, and they eventually came across Brandon under a blanket on the floor at the foot of Lisa's bed. Thomas grabbed him and pulled him up, and then everyone started to yell, which woke the baby and made him cry. Thomas went to go lift the baby, but then Thomas told prosecutors that he looked back and saw Brandon clutching his stomach, but he claimed he didn't hear any gunfire. He then saw Brandon twitching, so he got John's knife and began to stab Brandon in the stomach. Lisa then screamed at them and questioned why they were doing this, but they ignored her and Thomas handed Lisa's son to her and she put him on the bed and then John shot her in the stomach and she screamed. Tom picked up the baby and returned him to his crib and then questioned Lisa if there was anyone else in the house. Maybe she shouldn't have said anything but she told them Philip was in the home. John went off to find him, and when he did, John returned him to Lisa's room, and Philip was shouting. And then John shot Lisa again, killing her. After he shot and killed Lisa, John dragged Philip back to the living room. And as he was, Philip tried to persuade him and plead with him and told him that he wouldn't say anything, but John wouldn't hear any of it. He and Thomas ordered Philip to sit on the couch, and John shot him twice in his head, killing him. They then fled the home and tried to throw their gloves and weapons into the river, but since it was frozen due to winter, that plan failed. Eventually, both men were found guilty of the murders, and in 1996, Thomas was sentenced to life without parole, and John was sentenced to death. And despite having several appeals, John Lauder remains on Nebraska's death row. And after the trial, Joanne Brandon sued Richardson County and Sheriff Charles Lowe for failing to prevent Brandon's death as well as being an indirect cause. Joanne went on to win her case in 1999, and she was awarded $80,000 plus $6,000 for funeral cost. And she was also awarded an additional $12,500 for the intentional infliction of emotional distress and wrongful death. The story of the Humboldt murders comes from the sources of True TV, The New Yorker, ABC News, and others I'll put in the notes. All right, uh, uh, that one was a tough one. It, they usually are. Um, but I did want to go ahead and warn you that this was going to be a case of rape or sexual assault and a hate crime. 
Um, but I do want to go into a few things that struck out to me or stuck out to me during this case. Um, number one, I'm not sure if it's fair to call Brandon trans only because from my understanding, Brandon was confused about his identity before he died. And I know he went by he, but he did tell his friend that he was still confused about his sexual identity crisis or sexual identity and he had a sexual identity crisis um but if you all call him trans then you know i know most publications have called him trans and i'm pretty sure many of you have heard of this story um but i don't know if we should call him trans only because he wasn't quite sure himself um also either way um i say pretty much f you to that sheriff and thomas and john for killing and killing innocent victims um brandon because he had every right to follow rape report because they did rape him um they took away someone's mother lisa and they hung out with philip but in the end according to a report they ended up calling him racial slurs um so they weren't his friend in the first place and that sheriff was effed up because he was asking brandon about his virginity status and calling brandon it and all this bad stuff and according to another article i think i read i believe he's dead um i'm not sure um that doesn't really have to do with anything but i do think he has passed on and i, I wonder if he has ever regretted not pressing charges um because brandon lisa and philip would probably still be here um and it's quite sad that Brandon, before he died, had a life of crime. And I'm not condoning um, that at all because he had to survive because he wanted to live his true self. He wanted to live as Billy, but he didn't have an ID with Billy. And I don't know if anyone would give him um, an ID with Billy back then, knowing that his real name was Tina, Tina Brandon, and he was born female. So I'm not sure about that. Um, I didn't talk much about the killers there's no need to to me um they said according to an article that at trial they talked about their low iqs the psychologist but I, and they had like abusive backgrounds but that doesn't justify to me what they did they were triple murderers and they killed people in front of a baby killed people overall but they killed people in front of a baby and that does not excuse anything to me um another thing i found interesting it's a little small like blurb I, I uh going back on the story um it's quite interesting about the tampon wrappers i don't know if you all understood but it was alluding that brandon was using tampons um even though everyone thought he was male at first um so <laughs> that's a little strange but i can only imagine the confusion like wait you don't even i don't even use this brand and my other roommate's pregnant so what's going on here and um I know you all have probably seen, a lot of you have seen the Oscar winning movie, Boys Don't Cry, which is based off of the triple murder. And um, apparently there are a lot of inaccuracies um, because number one, Philip wasn't even mentioned. And number two, I think, I don't, I haven't seen it honestly, but apparently there's a lot of inaccuracies. Um, if you have seen it, you can tell me which ones they are, or I could look at it myself, of course. Um, Thomas had children. One of the killers, Thomas, had children. Uh, sorry, I failed to mention that earlier. But the murders were clearly premeditated because he gave power of attorney to his mom um, for one of his kids. And um, 
to me that meant he knew he was about to do something and he was going to go away for a long time if not forever so he, i don't know where the mom is in the situation uh, the child's mom in the situation but he knew he was going away for a while he knew he was up, about to do something and that child needed power of attorney and i partially blame lana's mother i don't know if she was scared but she could have just said she didn't know where brandon was she could have protected him in my opinion and maybe he'd still be here today um and philip and um lisa and i wonder how lisa's mother was when she found the bodies obviously she was in shock and she was trying to focus and find her grandson um but I would run through a whole bunch of emotions, especially seeing my daughter like that. And uh, my child is, my not my child, my grandchild is crying and she's and she saw bodies and I wouldn't know what to do with that. And I, I'm glad she focused on her grandson, obviously. Make sure he's taken care of first and I guess react later uh, to seeing that crime scene. And lastly, I just want to, I, I have a like a question you know, I wonder if the killers were planning on the baby dying on his own um, because the baby, they were, apparently there was no 911 call um, after they did the um, killings. Obviously not. They didn't call. Um, and the baby was by himself crying around his mom's bodies, uh, mom's body. And there were bodies not too far away from him. And the whole situation is just so effed up and so sad. And um, I would love to know what you all think of this case. Um, so yeah, that was my opinion piece. And that's it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of 90s Crime Time, this special New Year's Eve 90s Crime Time. And I hope you are intrigued. Please let me know what you think of this episode on 90s Crime Time social media pages, on Instagram, Facebook, and or Twitter. Also, if you'd like to monetarily support the show, you can head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash 90s crime time and support there. And lastly, if you enjoy the show and you haven't already, um, please leave a review, hopefully in a good way, on any podcast platform that has 90s crime time um, and has a rating system primarily Apple. And I also heard that Spotify is getting a rating system as well. So if you listen primarily to Spotify and they have the rating system up, I'm not sure if they do already or not. But if they do, please leave the show at least four stars. Um, I hope that you do still enjoy the show. Lastly, stay safe and healthy and I'll see you the week after next for a brand new episode of 90s Crime Time. Mm-hmm.